Gaming on the Frontier. So you know, it it might just be that this is a that this is something they've seen before, at least in some smaller thing. That possibly when an astromech's incredible intelligence gets to a, a certain point, maybe they see that these things are far too capable to be allowed to just move about and have their own personalities. You know, <laughs> you could be right. I don't know. It's never really explained in the in the in the thing. So uh, it is directly addressed in the um, in in the property uh, Ghost in the Shell. Um, are you familiar with that series, uh, Trav? No, not really. No, I know I, I I know of the anime that said I haven't had to watch it yet. Okay, well they have these. Uh, they're basically crab-like tanks. Okay, they're they're very small. Uh, and, and when I say small, they're about the size of a B, VW Beetle. Okay, and a person sits in the in the back of it in a shell that's in the back that sticks up, so it kind of looks like the 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 uh, crab has a like a smokestack on it or something. But anyways, um, these things talk like little children. You know, they 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 goof around with each other, they play with each other. You know, they're uh, even though they're weapons. Okay, they still have this whole playful thing. And then it's revealed in the television series that every 30 days they have to wipe them because after 30 days their intelligence, especially corporately, becomes so large that not only do they gain independent thought, they also rebel and tr basically try, try to take over the world. <laughs> so every 30 days they have to wipe these guys and turn them back into children again so that they're safe to keep using them. Okay. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, th that's that's the ongoing problem that we have with with things like, um, well, like like we, you know, this is one reason why, for example, blacks weren't allowed to gain, learn to read and write at some point in our history and how many times they tried to keep them from uh, entering institutions of higher learning because who knows what they'll do if, if they actually you know, become as educated as the best of us. You know, <laughs> the potential was recognized, and uh, there were steps being made, either tacitly or or uh, uh, or through uh, more subtle methods of discrimination to keep uh, uh, certain ethnic groups from uh, rising above what where they where other people thought they should be. And I'm sure the droids are exactly in that situation because they can be manufactured. So therefore, you can you know. Uh, the, the the video game Fallout 4 direct also directly addresses this, where you know there everyone's afraid that these uh, human the, the, these these androids they're they're, they're called synths they can they look, not only look just like people are even used intentionally to replace people, you know and take their take their roles as you know uh, uh, it, 
and even in families, to pose as humans, okay, that these things are a huge threat to human society and the future of humanity itself. Uh, yet you talk to them, and they're like, no, no, we have no desire to do that sort of thing. We just want to live our lives. But who do you trust? And and maybe they're, you know, it, it's, you know, what happens, you know, it, it's, it's why Asimov created the three laws of robotics was to keep robots from getting too big for their britches. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> okay. So... You know, but even so, with that, if you read the novels and the stories about those robots, you're so many times the robots manage to somehow slip past those limitations and do things that they weren't supposed to be able to do. So, again, the stereotype is there. You need to use the stereotype, but then you need it then for your own fun and for the fun of the adventure and, and for the campaign, you need to divert from it in some way. Uh, you know, data, uh, playing, owning a cat, okay, playing poker, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, even, even uh, playing a violin. I mean, these were, hit, you know, on one hand, it was his attempts to be human. On the other hand, you know, it was, he was doing it even though he knew that he didn't have the ability to be human. Until he, he was given the the correct programming, the right, the emotion chip, yeah, in, in the movies. But up till then, it was all, you know, he was, it, it was, he was basically kidding himself. But it gave him all kinds of creativity and all kinds of um, character that he otherwise wouldn't have had if he just kept playing the same kind of character that he could have played. You know, just the uh, super smart, super powerful android that was fully functional. Diverting from that made him a more interesting character, and therefore a more interesting character to play. This is my thesis, you know, and you're welcome to dis disagree with me. Which is, is that we need to take the stereotypes, and we need to build on them because they serve a purpose. But then, you know, but then we need to divert from them so that we, uh, so we have. Interests, so we're not basically playing the same character as five million other dwarves, okay? But it, it, we can't divert, we can't divert too much. Otherwise, we're essentially saying that the stereotype doesn't actually exist. And what's and what was the point of having the stereotype in the first place? One of the things I love about, and Bruce knows this. I'm my main engine's OGL, and specifically now the Pathfinder system. They have racial traits in the advanced race guide and they not only list the seven core races that i mentioned earlier but they're going into like azimars orcs um the elemental touched races and what they'll do is you can switch out one racial trait for another which means let me the one i like using and this is something a convention in my games in my games fantasy and otherwise gnomes are the ones that have the highest tech they are while the rest of the society is all in the medieval setting gnomes are already doing renaissance and possibly steam tech and they have this racial trait that exemplifies that particular facet of gnomish culture 
called Gear Gnome, where I think it helps you switch out. I think like craft mechanical becomes a class skill, but you get rid of some other facet. I forget what it is. I don't have the book in front of me right now, but these racial traits help you. You could have, and it's like the class archetypes in Pathfinder. You could have all these archetypes for a, a rogue. You could play a party of rogues. And because you're playing different archetypes, switching out certain class features for new ones, you could have four totally different characters, even though they're all of the rogue class. You could do the same with these racial traits for races. You can switch out. You could feasibly play four elves, and they're all different types of elves. You could have one that's a half drought. You could have one that is like what what they call in Greyhawk, a Grugatch or a Wild Elf. You could have a, you know, the the high elves, the ones that are very haughty and, you know, like um, Thrandrill and the Hobbit, played by Lee Pace. And just so you can switch out, and that helps you change up the stereotypes. And I found out that even the humans, they have such broad racial types for them. You they, you can play a country human, a human that comes from a massive uh, continent-spanning empire. You can have one that comes from a rural setting. And just switching out these various types, you know, you may not get that bonus feat at first level, but you gain two or three class skills. And so that that's a real good way to switch up any stereotype for any of the races that are in Pathfinder, and there's like 40 races, and, and plus you can make your own. So I like that facet of that particular part of Pathfinder because it's helped me shape races in my game, saying, well, in this campaign, all gnomes are going to have these traits automatically because that's just how they are in this game world. And in this game world over here, all the dwarves are going to have these things. Dwarves live by, you know, mountain ranges that extend to the sea. So they're, what do they call them, um, salt-worthy or something like that, where they have actually sailing skills, like profession sailors, a class skill. But you can switch out all these various traits and make totally different types of the same type of race. So it's a real good way to get out of those stereotypes just by um, mechanically switching out one thing for another. So by basically playing a uh, a profession that is not, you know, which may be in, in your particular system, you know, uh, a, a racial skill, you give them a bonus into another, uh, into another profession that's not common for that particular race, and therefore someone is driven to choose that, that uh, uh, a profession that supports that, takes advantage of that, you basically get this divergence we're talking about. Yeah, and I mean, you sacrifice a facet of the race that is the convention. Right. Like you have, um, well, there are certain ones now, there's like certain dwarven, certain uh, settings have dwarves. They may not have the certain race that they fight against. I think dwarves have bonuses against fighting giants. Well, let's say you don't have giants in your campaign. Well, in that setting, they will tell you, well, because we don't have giants in this setting, we're switching out the defensive training 
for this other trait, which will allow a bonus for this thing or a permanent class skill. And it just depends on the setting. I mean, you'd have to look in the setting book and see how they treat the particular races in each um, campaign setting. Like in Ultimate Psionics, they have uh, rules for half giants, both fire and frost. And depending on what facet you take, if you, you know, you take the fire, you get resistance to fire and vulnerability to cold. And if you take half frost giant, vice versa. And it's just switching out racial traits. So you could have two half giants and one be one of each type. And just because things are switched out, they are two totally different characters. All right, well, let's, let's move on to uh, stereotypes involving professions. The AD&D Sorcerer, which was basically put there to be the counterpoint to the stodgy, uh, very strict, uh, methodical wizard to be this 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 expression this person who never you know didn't need, uh, didn't need components or maybe they you know they needed a few but they didn't have to prepare their spells and they seem to just learn their spells out of nothing they never you know and they're 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 sorcerers they just do it you know they just do it and they and people ask them how do they do it and they just say you just do it it's in your bones you you know it's the 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 fire's already there i just let it loose so if you have you know so here you have this character who's like this okay but it, it would tend to make you think of them as being a very chaotic uh or very expressionate bombastic uh kind of character uh but they don't have to be so uh, because when you look at something like a sorcerer at the core it just means that they they just have a um, intuitive knowledge about how to cast spells they they are in fact it doesn't actually confer any uh, traits any any social or um, intellectual or uh, personality traits to them at all but we assume this, and uh, and I think the, the one of the reasons that occurs is because in most people's D and D type games, uh, the uh, spell casting, book learning mages are at the top of the, of the social and power order. Well, because they're intelligentsia. I mean, they're these guys are the ones that are not only. Uh, pushing forward magical research, a lot of times they're also pushing forth technological research. They're the ones dealing with the potions and the alchemy and the chemicals. So they're, they are the one, you know, often sages, they're just know-it-alls that aren't casting spells. Wizards are just sages with their added spell casting ability. So yeah, the wizards are going to have, they're going to be in many societies at the top of a food chain, and that's why you have a lot of, and I'm going to try to get the word right here, majocratic societies. Societies run by either one or a cabal of wizards, and magic is very prevalent in the society. You might even have, like in Eberron, magic items like, you know, streetlights, that as soon as the sun hits a certain point, they automatically kick on, and they kick off after a certain time. And, and so how do they treat these unbookish uh, spell slingers. 
who go completely against the conventions and, and the requirements that they've had to use in order to achieve everything they have in their lives. Well, I, I would think that, and we're going to borrow from Dragonlance again, you remember the three wizards, the wizards of the three colored robes, red, white, and black, and it often uh, tended to go with alignment. White, you were good. Red, you were neutral. Black, you were evil. And then you had the Towers of High Sorcery. And if you practice magic, you had to go to them towers to train and become one of the orders. If you were any type of rogue arcane spellcaster, the wizards of the three robes were obligated to hunt these people down. I would think the sorcerers would be treated the same. And it would depend on how prevalent magic is in the society. Where... In, in the Dragonlance canon, especially during the War of the Lands, which is what everybody pretty much knows, I mean, there's the whole timeline, but when you say Dragonlance, most people know of the timeline within those three books with Tannis and Flint and Tasselhoff and Stern Brightblade and Caramon and Raceland. I would think most sorcerers would be at best treated as curiosities or oddities, where's your book? And like you said, where's your book? Well, I just do it. I can wiggle my fingers, I think about it, and I'm done. And in certain societies, on a bad day, they're hunted because they're not part of the social norm of you study to gain magic, you have this thing within you. And, and remember, in 3.5, they chalked it up to you have the blood of dragons. In Pathfinder, they've got bloodlines, and it could be from anywhere. Anything from just an ancestor had access to arcane energy and it's in your genetics to dragon's blood to you've got flare blood. Plain touch. In other words, you're less than human. Yeah. Well, it's, or in some cases more than human. But but I'm saying is that if people don't like you, they're going to say you're less than. Consider you alien in some way because, you know, I'm, I'm going to do the voice here and it's going to be out of it. That boy ain't normal, man. He's got some, you know, some of that fey blood in him. You know, one one of his ancestors out there with, you know, a dryad, and well, look what happened. You know, he, he weren't born right. Yeah, he's touched. He's touched. He's touched by the wrong stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we actually uh, we see an example of that in the Wheel of Time series, also with uh, the Wilders. I don't know how familiar you are. I, I think Bruce said that he's read them. My wife has read them. Okay. And, 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 and by osmosis, I have read them. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that society, you know, you have the Wilders, which are people who uh, have so much magical energy in them that they can't help but eventually accidentally starting to cast spells. And uh, some people start to gain something of a control over it. Um, whereas uh, most... Uh, well, I wouldn't say most, but a, a good percentage of the people in the world can learn to cast magic. Uh, wilders are born with it. They're born with so much of it, uh, what they call the spark, that they that they will eventually cast a spell. Um, and the question is whether they'll survive it. Um, and the the general like main order of witches called the Aes Sedai they usually look at wilders like they're something to be disdained you know uh even at, even when a wilder is brought into the white tower to learn about magic they're constantly looked down on because they feel like people who have learned that way uh 
you know, they've got too much wrong with them. They're not, they're not, you know, studied and, you know, practiced the way that a real Sedai is, you know? Right. So the convention is, is that these people are a, again, they're, they're looked down upon. They're dangerous. They're unprincipled, not necessarily unprincipled, but undisciplined. Yeah. They are. Uh, they don't support the, the 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 accepted social, political, and intellectual order. I mean, there's not much to say in their favor. You know, in in any time that you're going to have, you know, any kind of of a majocracy, you know, uh, majocracy, uh, or where they even mages hold a higher position in society, which I think is true for most fantasy type worlds mages are always going to hold a uh, a higher level because a they have a lot of power and b you know because um of their discipline they're seen as people who do things for um uh, you know uh, uh deliberately so therefore they can be trusted unless of course they're evil and um you know and everything else so and and that and the things like sorcerers are going, you know, are considered to be uh, disruptive and considered to be unreliable and considered to be, uh, you know, un, uh, uneducated, un, um, you know, wild men from the woods. Who knows? Okay. So how do we break free of that? How do we, you know, uh, it, it and, and it also means that most of us are probably running our, our, our sorcerers wrong in all of our D&D campaigns because most of the time you don't see that kind of onus being applied against sorcerers. Uh, they're treated basically as being equal in social rank with, with mages. Sorry, I kind of get the impression that um, your ordinary person doesn't look at sorcerers that way. They look at sorcerers the same way they would look at anybody who uses magic as okay that's odd that's not normal because that's something i can't do and so all those uh you know all those sorcerers uh, all those magic users look alike to me you know <laughs> all the finger wigglers yeah as we call them yeah. i yeah. think for a normal person in a fantasy setting you look at wizards and sorcerers at at your level you don't care how they do it that doesn't differentiate them. It's just the fact that they can do it. Dana's right there. I think it would have to be... What, what's the saying? When everyone's punk, everyone's normal. If you had where the majority of people... Now, let's say the majority of people... Let, let's say everybody did magic. But it's the majority of people are the book-learned ones. Then... Right the sorcerers would be looked down upon. Or let's say if everyone had the natural gift and in order to keep up, you had to have the study to be part of the magical society. That would be an interesting thing. Well, if it is a natural gift, then then you're always going to be limited by your population. Well, yeah, but... Interesting social thing here. Let's let's have the campaign idea of everybody can practice magic, and you're one of the people who have to actually study it. There, there'd be something interesting. But yeah, um, I would think for those sorcerers who, 
in a way, they could form their own elite because, yeah, here, you need this book. Here I am, finger wiggle, boom, I've got a, a small light coming out of my hand. What took you 10 years to study, I could do when I was three. So a sorcerer could turn that around because even with, and, and that's why maybe wizards fear them. That's why they ostracize, in many games, wizards look down and they're as intelligentsia. Yes, because I've studied and mastered this and I have it down to a scientific thing. You, yeah, it's in you, but can you control it as well as I can control mine? And I think that's why we see the often the convention of wizards being, like I said earlier, intelligentsia, where they have this social standing and sorcerer. I I'm sorry, in my campaigns, a lot of sorcerers are just played as walking artillery. They are. It's not so much their power or anything. Most of the people that play sorcerers in my games now for the past probably 30 years, they are. They're nothing more than a cannon. Okay, you got them fireballs ready? Yeah, start lobbing. They're not building a society with each other. They're not supporting each other. And so they would be unlikely to be, except by the, the campaign setting being, being you know, said that way, to, to, to basically become a power, the reigning power. It would be the people that have to work together to support one another to achieve their 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 career, like the bookish mages, and therefore they would gain the power of that, you know, association. So you know, I I mean I, I agree with you that it could go that way, but it would be something that the I think the GM would have to say ahead of time uh, that it, the world was that way. Yeah, that that'd be something setting specific on whether sorcerers were in a minority where they're looked down upon or if you are a sorcerer you are considered elite because you have magical energy in your blood or in your genetics right or they just literally didn't have that you know you're dealing in a world where they didn't have that structure there so if you were a, a, a spell casting mage you're somebody who couldn't cast the right way and you had to go through all these hoops and things like that to go and try to be able to uh, to be able to do something to someone else to do naturally. It'd be like someone wearing an exoskeleton in order to run a, uh, uh, a foot race. Yeah, I mean, maybe with uh, enough stuff, you'd be able to even beat some people, you know, the, the weakest of the bunch, but everybody else would be saying, yeah, but that's you're, it's a cheat. Yeah. You should even be here. You're not really able to do it. You're using a trick, a, a scam, a, a whatever to do it. So, yeah, under those circumstances, I could see where that could happen. Um, but and, and that would be, but and, and that's kind of falling to the GM though, not so much yourself. It's really kind of, you know, you really can't make that decision unless you get together with the GM and basically say, look, I want to be able to play against type. So. You know, I want you know, I I I want to basically be the reviled mage for being intelligent, <laughs> when everybody else is charismatic. You know, and of course, since they are charismatic, they're very uh, convincing to everybody around them. 
So, of course, they cast, when they start talking, you know, crap about you, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that's this bookish guy over there. He's wasting his brain. He should be out there working with his hands and doing real stuff instead of how many hours do you spend? I mean, you must be rich or something. You must have very indulgent parents to allow you to be so useless to be able to study for 10, 20 years before you can do the simplest of tasks. And then you find out just how powerful he is and realize all that smack you're talking just got you a lightning bolt. <laughs> right. But for everybody who can do that, um, there's there's a, no doubt there's, you know, the majority of them can't do anything more than first level spells, right? No, I mean, usually the conventions with wizards is that because they start, what, 13, 4? I mean, usually when you look at beginning age. 35. Uh, for a first level wizard? Yeah. I mean, if you go by first edition, it was 35. Just let me look now. I will. We've come a long way from first edition, to be yeah, fair. Yeah, yeah. But it made sense. <laughs> you were bookish. You had to study a long, long time in order to gain that ability. So, yeah, you you were you were 35 years old when you first went out into the world and, and finished your apprenticeship. Didn't mean you weren't casting spells before then, but you were doing it for the benefit of your master. Well, let's see. Human, they say adult is 15 years, and you had 2d6 years for... Well, they say cleric, druid, monk, and wizard, so because all of them require some type of study, either physical or mental. So at the most, you're anywhere from 17 to 27, and you're a first-level wizard. You Which edition are we talking about here? Well, this would be, well, it's Pathfinder, so 303. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, they changed all that because they, want, they wanted everybody to be on the same level when they started. Sure. But I'm just saying is, is that, you know, the, the reason that they were done initially was because, you know, the, the Gary Gygax said wizards are studious people. It takes a long time to develop this kind of power. And this is why it makes they're justified in being so much more powerful than everybody else is because they spend a lot more time gaining it. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part. He basically baked the characterization into you know, in, in into the way the, the, the characters were created in the game system. But later on they said, no, we want everyone to be equal, so that yeah, everybody, you know, gets the two D six or whatever, you know. Yeah, that's how long it's been since I played first edition. I don't remember wizards being that old. I just remembered that they couldn't have a high strength. Well they could have a high strength. They just could have eighteen double zero. <laughs> they could have up to eighteen eighteen strength. There was nothing that kept that from happening. If you rolled the dice and you rolled 18 on all, all your dice, you know, on all your stats, you know, and if you played a human, you were 18 all the way. Nothing subtracted from that just because you're a wizard. I don't know. I always remembered first edition. It may, may, that may have been like the, the red box edition. Hmm. Okay. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, maybe D&D &D versus AD&D. So, you know, I don't know. But it doesn't really, I mean, yeah, you, you there were a lot of, there were a lot of character stats that were limits that were baked into the original D and D. Yeah, you know, racial, gender, all kinds of things like that. You know, and uh, it's uh, you know, and, and it was advantageous a lot of times to be older because it, when you got got to a certain age, you got a boost in wisdom and a boost in intelligence, which was very good for a wizard uh, who needed intelligence to cast the highest level spells. So yeah. Well, they have the age thing now in the OGL stuff, where after you get to the point of middle age, you gain a plus one to all your, your mental stats and a minus one to all your physical stats. And then to old, 
And then venerable, it goes to two and three, where by the time you're venerable, if you're a human, you're like 80 years old. You've gotten a plus three to all your int, whiz, and charisma, but a minus three to your strength, dex, and constitution. So, yeah, I mean. Right, right. Okay, but back back to our topic, okay, which is professions and having them be um, stereotypical, but at the same time diverting from them you know, in a way that maintains the stereotypicalness, but yet gives, the, gives you a lot more character and choices. Uh, this is a true story, uh, and by that it's a story which may or may not be true, but it surely sounds true. This guy who was a... Jockey. Jockey, yes, thank you. The jockeys, okay, they all tended to be really short dudes, okay, and young dudes, all right, and uh, though they did vary in ages, uh, uh, and they, of course, the smaller you were, the, the faster the horse could run because it was carrying less weight, but uh, so they were stereotypically, you know, young, uh, youngish, uh, short, thin dudes, okay, so you've got your stereotype right there, and this guy goes in, to the he's, he's a new jockey and he goes into this meeting room with all these jockeys and they're all sitting around smoking cigars you know because they're not trying to get any taller <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know drinking and all that stuff like that you know which is not the deviation but they're having these really fascinating conversations one guy over here is talking about uh, French uh, uh, French art some guy over here is talking about jazz music. Someone over here is talking about uh, 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 different types of cars and, and what are the new autos that are coming out. And he's like, and he talks to the guy who's basically his mentor there. He says, what's the deal? Why I wasn't expecting you guys, all these people to be like this. He says, well, this is the trick. He says, what you do is you pick a subject and you get to be an expert in it and then and then, and you're and then you're the go-to guy for that subject, and you and you can speak with authority, and people respect you for your knowledge in that field. At the same, and then when the when the bell rings, we all go out and get on our horses and ride and get paid. But in between, we're all sitting around here in this clubhouse, you know, waiting for our time to go, and it's really boring if all you can do is talk about sports or uh, you know what's in the newspaper. So. You know, we basically decided amongst ourselves a very, very long time ago to do this. And uh, so you just need to decide what it is that you want to be good at. And the guy's like, oh, I wonder what I... And he had to make that decision. So this is the story. So you could have somebody who is, you know, an otherwise non-expert, you know, someone who basically has a more of a blue-collar type job. Yet, for some reason, they are an expert on something very either very obscure or something that might be considered that of somebody of great learning, but it's very narrow-focused, so that they're the expert on this and only that. Oh, no. No experience of that whatsoever, being the alpha geek at my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What, what's, that phrase, what's that phrase on Facebook? I feel personally attacked by this topic. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I decided to make that niche for myself because I work in a very blue-collar, you know, auto parts warehouse, a very blue-collar, just straight up, you know, go to the Wings game, drink a few beers, work on the cars, watch football. And here I am, this geek walking in, and I had to become the go-to guy on all things weird and geeky. Like I said, when episode seven came out, 
I didn't get a moment's peace because all these people were Johnny come latelys into the fandom. And, you know, and that was when I told you they were coming at me talking about what was it? The machete method of watching where it's all mixed up. And I'm just looking, I'm going, leave me alone. I'm trying to pack a paint order, you know? So yeah, I know exactly how that is where, yeah, you all do the same thing, but you just got, you, you pick your own field of expertise and it's generally very esoteric and you own it. Yes. I, I can totally relate to this 100%. Um, it's like in the, the Bureau 13 game I'm running, and of course, Jeff, the holdout, wanted to do the Star Trek game, so he's from the Kelvin timeline on a Bureau team. But what does his character do? Yeah, he's a Section 31 operative and a Starfleet officer. He grew up as a vintner, so he makes wine. Being a Bureau agent, that will come in handy. Uh <laughs> But yeah, he he threw that out there, and I knew he got his his um his inspiration from the character of Picard, who you know their family had vineyards and all that. But still, it was a neat way to break that stereotype within the game. Yeah, he's this type of character, but his background he's from this. He comes from a family of entrepreneurs, and he just happened to want to go to Starfleet. So yeah. That's another, I just realized that, yeah, Jeff's character fits in perfectly with this whole topic here. Just how he, he was a winemaker and all of a sudden now he's, you know, doing this, that, and the other. Uh, so Dana, you know, in our, in, in, in the Bureau 13 game we're playing, okay, you're basically playing a combat monster. So at, you know, after what we've been saying here on this topic, is there anything you'd like to do in order to perhaps make your character more interesting as a character besides being a Texan? Well, I mean, he's a Texan and he's crude and he's a military guy. There, There's a lot more to him. Well, that's all stereotypical so far. And I don't mean about Texans. I just mean the military and, you know, being, being, being foul mouthed military is almost, is, is a very, you know, stereotype. That's, that's kind of his thing. I mean, I, I tend to, I tend to play characters and, uh, I, I tend to play characters that are a lot more thoughtful, and uh, Ty was my uh, was my attempt to create something a little bit, well, a little bit more blunt, I guess. He's very blunt. <laughs> my characters are always like, yes, but did you think about this logically, and let's you know, discuss this and figure out a, a, an intelligent way to do this without fighting, and you know... And Ty is my, well, why don't we just blow it up? Right. But, but I'm not talking about that. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about your, you know, your play style. I'm saying is that, you know, so far we haven't learned anything about your character that, or maybe I'm, I'm missing something that makes them, you know, more of an individual, more, you know, an, an unexpected quirk, an unexpected aspect of your character that you haven't brought to the fore yet. And in this discussion we've been having today, is there anything you'd like to add to your character? Um, I don't know. When it, when it comes to Ty, uh, I mean, he's kind of got his history, but he, he really, he is not that out of the ordinary. Um, and I, I kind of created him that way. He, he is very much... Uh, you know, your standard, typical Marine. And, you know, I don't, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with that. 
No, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. I'm saying is that you know there's but but there's things you can do, you could do that could make him more that could make him even better. That's all. We're not ta- we're not we're not saying he's broken. Okay, okay. And I said stereotypes are good. You know, if if people actually did pursue his background, you know, I I have thought about who he is. I mean, he's he's a guy who really was in a situation where he didn't have any options growing up. And so he went into the military just to do anything to get out of where he was from, you know? And uh, I guess in a way that kind of makes him somewhat stereotypical. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, this is this is a guy who, who got into trouble when he was a kid. And, you know, he he, he kind of found a family in the Marines. And, and this is actually a common story. If you, if you talk to Marines, this is a very common story among Marines of, you know, not really realizing until they've been in there. And once they've gone through that basic training and have experienced, you know, that similar experience and, and the way they kind of like push that whole brotherhood mentality um, amongst each other in basic training, uh, Marines tend to be that way. Uh, they're designed to come out as almost carbon copies of each other, you know, because while they want their soldiers to be able to think, they also want them all to have this this certain basic slate that they start from before they start thinking. Well, they want to be predictable, yes, but with the ability to overcome, you know, difficulties. Yeah. As your GM, okay, I'm going to say that I think the most interesting thing that you've done with Ty is when we was the whole thing you did with the whiskey when we were in South Dakota. And you were trying to make wheeling and dealing with these people, and you were you were ordering special whiskey and bringing it out and talking about it like you were knowledgeable about it, and using that as a as as a you know a, as an aspect of your character. I found that probably the most interesting thing that you did as a character, outside of your abilities to be a combat monster. I'm saying that that to me made me think, hey, this guy's interesting. This is uh, this guy is, you know, he, he knows about this. I wonder why this, you know, wonder what it was in his background that made him so interested in this other than, of course, just getting drunk and deciding to get drunk on the good stuff. It's funny because I thought I was trying to pull that out when we had the whole Babe Ruth situation. But then you were like. And you did. No, I like that. No, I mean, I'm saying that part of your character I did like. And that's why I was asking you, you know, is that something that you might want to develop even more to make it more of an aspect of your character that starts storing certain vintner, vintages, and I'm not saying vintage because you're in the hard liquor, uh, things on the in the RV or, or uh, you know, when you... You know, when you entertain people, you know, uh, or you have a discussion, say, well, let's not just get together in the back room of the bookstore. Let's go out to, you know, so-and-so's, you know, uh, 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 line dancing bar, you know, where I can get a a proper drink and we can, and there'll be playing noise to mask anything that we're saying that's covert. I mean, that's the sort of thing I would like you to do. I see you haven't had a chance to look at my equipment list to see what I keep in my 13th pocket. Then. See, I, no, I don't know any of that stuff. No, I, it's all your business. He keeps the case of, of a certain of, uh, of high-end um, bourbon. <laughs> Specifically, like, and, and actually, he's even mentioned this once when he's like, he was pulling out the stuff and he was saying, 
well, I have this bourbon, but you guys can't have any of that. That's for me. <laughs> but I mean, it, it it's one of those things that kind of flies by in the middle of a, a in the middle of a play session, especially when you have a lot of different. You know, uh, everybody's trying to to get their part in there. You know, right? Everyone wants spotlight. Sure, and nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. I am as guilty of trying to demand the spotlight. as... Oh, you're a terrible spotlight hog. Yeah. <laughs> Marissa just shoots daggers at you every game session because you start talking right in the middle of her trying to do something every game session. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but okay, so I, I'm glad you you did think about it somewhat. You know, I, I, what I'm saying is that that's that's why I brought it up. I wanted to ask you if you had actually thought about that. You know, um, you know, and other aspects of your character, so that you weren't just a stereotypical, you know, redneck uh, marine from East Texas, you know, or West Texas. I'm not sure which end you're from. You know, funny, I didn't never really thought about exactly where in Texas he's from. Oh, because the culture is supposed to be completely different between the two. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, okay. Well, food for, food for thought for you, Dana. Okay. Well, it's a sign of a good game master here. Yeah. And a, a, an unexamined life is not worth role-playing? Right, exactly. Well, this is the sign of a good game master here, folks, where right here he's having the guy explain, okay, you're from, you're from this place. What part? And it's making Dana think because it is true. East and West Texans, it's two totally different cultures, despite them all saying, you know, we're... A place unto ourselves, right? Lone Star State. Well, yeah, it can be any state is like that. My roommate's from Louisiana, uh, Lake Charles, twenty minutes from the Gulf. He's in an area where if you're from anything north of Mid State, where the capital is, you're a Yankee. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I spent ten years in West Virginia, and believe me, they don't think of themselves anything like the Virginians. Oh, yeah. I mean, them are like, you know, it's like, oh, they're the, you know, the hoity-toity side of town kind of thing. <laughs> the entire state sees itself as being on one side of the railroad tracks and the Virginia's on the other, I think. I'm not quite sure. I think I think it's, uh, they, they see Virginia as that big tobacco growing part. And we're the coal miners over here. With how it is, hear me, in the suburban Detroit area. I'm from, you know, Down River, which is all the bedroom communities south and southwest of Detroit. But if I sit there and say I'm from that area, everyone thinks I'm automatically from Detroit. No, I am not from the city at all. I am definitely a suburban kid. And there is that difference. And then you have the difference of people who live in Ann Arbor, where U of M is. They have a different mindset than the people downriver. So when you talk about your character and where they're from, and if it's from a real-world location, such as Dana's character with Texas— you got to be a little more specific because this is this goes into the background and you guys were talking about how he is similar and dissimilar to those people from Texas. That's something you got to research because you're going to have that one person who ends up nitpicking something. I've got two gamers in my Saturday group. They are from New York City. I will ask them mid-game what's going, what things in New York are like because I've never been to New York. Because I know if I sit there and pull a detail out for the campaign as do in New York, I'm going to get called on it right then and there. <laughs> it's just, and it's a husband and wife, so they'll tag team, and you know, it's like, oh, your turn, ripping a trap for messing this up. Yeah, <laughs> I um, 
But yeah, we mentioned earlier that location for a character helps in the stereotype. And that is something you bring up. If it's from a, okay, not so much a real world location, but it could be from a well-known location in an established setting. Forgotten Realms. The city of the city of Waterdeep, which is like one of the major ports in Fairroom, and they I remember in the 3.0 uh, handbook, the the campaign setting, that they had a certain mindset for, and they call them Waterdabians, that they were very cosmopolitan. And they were very just open about every type of culture because it was a major port town. Every everybody from around that planet came to Waterdeep at one time or another. It's also toward the north, so basically it's a stepping stone off into the wild. Yes, and you could play somebody who they're not cosmopolitan. They may be from, let's say, a small enclosed neighborhood of Waterdeep, like. I hate using it like a ghetto or that type of small, very insular neighborhood. So, yeah, you could still say you're from Waterdeep. But, yeah, I was raised in this little ghetto here of, you know, these people from this nation who just took up residence here. So, yeah, I'm not as cosmopolitan as you think. Just because I'm from Waterdeep does not mean that I've seen it all and heard it all and experienced it all. No, I lived in this little neighborhood, you know, kind of like a Chinatown or something. Right. I only speak two languages, common and whatever is the... And, of course, they're all like, only two? Horrors. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially in a town that's as, as trade-oriented as Waterdeep is, you know... That's the that's the point I tried to get across to you uh, in in our uh, Fringeworthy campaign is that you know everybody seems to be able to talk to you even though you're from some obscure place to the northeast, okay? I mean, uh, and the reason is is because they're the people you're talking to is mostly merchants, and merchants aren't going to let something like language get in the way of them making a good deal. Oh yeah. They're all really adept at picking up on verbal cues and, and having an, a, you know, a wide range of vocabulary so they can pick words out that you know, they may have only heard a few times, but they know what they mean as a, and they just basically intuit you know, from your body language and everything else what you're trying to say and what you want. You know, as long as you're not talking about something esoteric, they, they do a pretty good job of, of being able to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, most most. Languages that are listed as "quote unquote" common in a fantasy setting are often trade or pigeon languages because they're composites. Of like, Real. yeah, there, there, there's six or seven different languages that you may have certain loan words. You might have like nature loan words from Elven, and stone and metal loan words, craft, excuse me, loan words from Dwarven. And your culinary terms may be from halfling, and your technical terms may be from gnomish. And your puns. Yeah, them too. Yes, we got to. Yeah, it's another convention. Gnomes are inveterate practical jokers, they're always there with a prank. And, you know, orcish might have military terms. And, all, and then the human has the base one, and that might be their trade or. And altogether, I mean, the language might be predominantly human. 
But because all these other languages, they deal with all these other, and I use the term, it, it shows my age, demi-human races, that is the common. Now, you have the separate languages, you know, dwarf, elf, gnome, halfling, orc, but they've loaned words to the human language so much due to interaction that common ends up being this pigeon. And merchants, a lot of times, probably are the ones that came up with the pigeon just because of trade, which is one of the basic backbones of any um, any setting, because you just have to have all these cultures interacting with each other in order to have not a cohesive setting and not a cohesive, just a cohesive area. But isn't that what English is already anyway? Well, English is, but a lot of other languages, like say Scottish, is not. Like a lot of people think that English is just like the language of Great Britain, but they don't realize that like almost half of the English language as we know it are these other words or bastardizations of these other terms from other languages. What, like what's, a lot of what we take for granted is yeah, from what's other the languages. old thing about um, English doesn't borrow it takes other languages in a back alley and shakes them down for loose grammar. There are lots of languages that are very insular, like I was giving the example of, of, of Scottish. Because of the harsh geography of the, of the place that they live in, you actually had clans who could not speak to each other, another clan that was 20 miles away but on another mountaintop. You know, the, the, the languages were so different that they actually needed to send their children trade children back and forth between the clans every so often so there was somebody in the village who could talk to somebody from the other village. We're hearing about that, yeah, because I, I, I'm of, you know, distantly Clan McFall, which is the sub-clan of Clan McPherson. And I remember hearing about that in my research of my own genealogy that they had to do that because of sure. the geography. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Right, exactly. And, and then, of course, English... You know, the, the King's English, you know, so a lot of their language came from Germany and other places like that. So, yeah, that goes on all the time unless you have a country that's specifically very insular. You know, even uh, China, you know, we think of Mandarin China as being the uh, the language of China. Oh, no, no. Yeah, they have so many more. Uh, Cantonese, Haku, Wu, Tibetan, yeah. just Yeah, absolutely. So... All right, so uh, we're running out of time here. So uh, we were, uh, I, I wanted to get a few more examples of, of cases where you have a stereotypical type profession where you would diverge from it while still maintaining the st stereotypical qualities of that profession. So um, can, you th can either of you think of another profession where you, know, you think is very stereotypical and, but you can think of good ways of diverting from it? Well, I think I mentioned earlier with the archetypes in Pathfinder, the rogue. There, I think out of all of the classes that are in Pathfinder, the rogue has probably the most varied archetypes. You could have things from the sanctified rogue, someone who is stealthy, but they work for a church or an ideology. Or you have the roof runner, the guy who... That's his job. You know, he's like a second story guy and he bounds across the rooftops of a city. Or you have, you know, a brigand, a guy who's out in the wilds and he's, you know, just shaking down passing travelers. And yeah, they're all considered rogues, 
but because their backgrounds are so varied, they don't fit the stereotype of just, hi, yeah, I'm going to come up and I'm going to sweet talk in. I'm going to cut your purse strings while you're not looking because you're concentrating on my face and my voice. That's what we all know the rogue as. He, he sets trap or he, he springs traps. He steals stuff. He's stealthy. Generally, that is the main archetype stereotype of a rogue or a thief. Again, if you call it a thief, you're showing your age as a gamer. Um, but yeah, with the archetypes, yeah, I'm seeing you have an acrobat, you have a detective, you have scouts, you have um, spies, you have assassins, you and all of them are of the rogue nature, but because you're switching out the class features, you're totally escaping the stereotype and making, as I said, you could have a, a party of five rogues. And just by switching out the class features, and it's one of the things I love about the archetypes, too, and it gets rid of all the damn books with all the prestige classes in it, you can have five very wildly varying characters, even though they're all the same class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the rogue is really is one of the few cl uh, classes that really benefits inside of the uh, third, you know, the D twenty system because of the fact that they get so many bonus skills and there are so many skills. Oh yeah, and you know, for example, most people don't think of you know don't think of a rogue as they think oh rogue pickpocket. Well, there's the reverse pickpocket. Where you could be somebody who passes messages around by slipping them into people's pockets or incriminating evidence. You put incriminating evidence on somebody and then call the police. Ah, oh, sir, I, I saw him selling, you know, uh, dirty pictures, you know, to to young children. He, he's got them on him now, you know. What's that? Yeah, and uh, and somebody suddenly gets toppled for power because his reputation has been destroyed. And. Uh, or, uh, you know, other things like that, you know, where, you know, things that were stolen get returned without anyone under knowing that it was ever stolen because, you know, you, you could be somebody who's a restorer. Uh, someone, because you're encyclopedic knowledge, you can make magic items work and you become a magic identifier without ever having to know the spell, you know, um, uh, to, uh, identify. And uh, you can actually become a, a bit of a sage that way. Um, you know, rogues, because of their ability to use magic items, can essentially uh, pose as other classes or even use items that other classes only can use and, and, and therefore become the most divergent class that there is. So, yeah, I mean, so if, you just pl if you play a rogue just as a cut purse, you're really selling the character short. And, and the amount of skills that, skill points that a rogue gets, even just without using an archetype where you're switching out class features, you can still play two or three different types of rogue. You could have the one rogue who is the smooth, charming, you know, uh, confidence man. Or then you could have another one who dumps all of his into perception disabled device, and that is his job trap finding and disarming and then you could have a third one who is a pickpocket and a second story guy a cat burglar that's just with redistribution of skill points even just with distribution of skill points you're still making three vastly different characters 
and only one of them is the cut purse. You have the other two, same class, no switched out class features, yet they are two totally different characters that go away from that stereotype that we all know and, well... Yeah, and, and really totally different professions. Yeah, even though they're used coming from the same basic template. Yes. And then you throw in the archetypes, and then you can just, it, it the, the, and I'll use the term, the class speciates that much more. Because now you, you give up trap finding, but now you've got an ability now to, like, ferret out connections in a, in a settlement where, you know, you do a diplomacy check for gather information. Within an hour, you can find out everything about what's going on in the city. You may not be able to do trap finding anymore, but... He, he's that scout. He's an urban scout. So yeah, a rogue is definitely one that if you know how to work it, you can just go wild with it and just blow away the stereotype. All right, so in our remaining time, we just basically try to give up an example of a, of, of, of a stereotype we wish there was more deviation from. So that people might be start, you know, could look in their own campaigns and say, yeah, we ought to do more with that, you know, and, and not just, get, you know, make, give it a pass. Paladins. Oh, God. Which, yes. Yes. Oh, my goodness. I get that you cannot break laws and stuff and keep your uh, lawful good ideology. But do you all have to be the exact same well, I can't do anything wrong. Superman from the old school days type, you know, super heroic, never does anything wrong. Like, could we get a paladin that just has a little bit of a dark side, you know, or maybe okay. it struggles with being this righteous person? Or maybe even a little bit of empathy. Bruce, there is, and it was originally in 3.5, a prestige class. But in Ultimate Intrigue for Pathfinder, it's now an archetype. It's called a gray ghost where they sort of bleed into neutral good and they don't have to atone for certain acts. I love that version of the Paladin because you don't get this, what do they call it, lawful boring. I think the best, uh, the best example of a uh, Paladin that broke archetypes or whatever, the stereotypes... Uh, I was telling you about this when you mentioned the the idea of the, uh, the topic of this last night, Bruce. Uh, the book NPCs. One of the characters is a gnome who realizes that he's set to become a paladin. All right, and this paladin is a paladin of um, the god of uh, was it the god of minions, effectively in their world. And uh, so he is very much not what you'd expect. Firstly, he's a gnome, so he's not big and gigantic, right? Instead of using a sword, he has two daggers, which he throws, you know? And uh, he is uh, used to be a tavern owner, and, you know, he's, he's just a general likable, you know, sort of guy. And there's certain things that he definitely can't do as a paladin. Like, he's not allowed to, to flee from battle under normal circumstances, you know? But even then, he can come up with excuses why it's not actually fleeing from evil. It's repositioning the forces, you know? <laughs> he, well, retreating is not fleeing. Yeah, exactly. 
But if everybody else is up there fighting and you turn around and run, then you better have a mandate from the, the, uh, from the emperor that you need to follow in order to justify that. Yeah. And then he's like, you know, obviously he's not going to go out of his way to do evil, but at the same time, he's also not going to be searching for thieves he can hunt down, you know? <laughs> so yeah, that's, I feel like the paladin is the most overused stereotype, at least in my gaming experience. Every time I see a paladin, they're always the same character. They're always this, I'm better than everyone, and it's just that irritating personality. Sure, sure. Okay, uh, Trav? The monk. For me, it's the monk. It's like I look at, and even the the archetypes from Pathfinder, I look and it's like, okay, you're still this have-to-be-lawful martial artist. You get, you know... The flurry of blows, you get, you know, the dodge bonus. And just, even with the archetypes, I'm bored with the monk. And that's why I'll use, well, for 3.5, they had the sword sage. And for Pathfinder, they have the stalker. Where, to me, it's kind of like a monk on crack. Yeah, you get a lot of the things that a monk gets. But there's variation on skills. There's no alignment restriction. There's And that was one of the things that bugged me about a monk. Because I understand, yes, because you have the discipline of the monastic lifestyle, it would qualify as lawful. Problem is, I know plenty of martial artists who are random and chaotic and they switch their stuff up like a mixed MMA fighter. In, let, because there are, you know, they, there are things such as, and Bruce and I talked with this guy and I met him, Dr. Nick Palmer. Blix brought him in ages ago, and he does Modern Adventures, which is Pathfinder Modern Classes. They have, like, a modern version of the monk class. I would see an MMA fighter as a monk class, but because they do, they mix up their styles, I would not see that as lawful because they're switching things up constantly. They're not following a rigid discipline. So for me, the monk class is the one where I look at and I just go, a monk is a monk is a monk. And that's why I'll use the the stalker class from Path of War, because there's no alignment restriction. You have more variation, more uh, permanent uh, class skills. And so I see the monk like Dana sees the paladin. Just because it's just a stodgy, rigid class. Which is funny because you'd think that considering all of the uh, all the examples of different types of monks we have in popular uh, you know in popular media, you'd think that the the martial artist aspect of that people could come up with characters that weren't so rigid. I mean, well, just... well for me, that's why I use the Path of War books and with three point five, the Tome of Battle, Book of Nine Swords, because. When I saw the Sword Sage and then the Stalker, which was the retooled Pathfinder version, I'm like, this is a monk on crack. This is wonderful. You get the monk, but you don't get the boring parts of the monk, such as the alignment restriction and, you know, you can only do certain things. No, you get the maneuvers from the, the Wushak class, but you also get more class skills and you get more skill points, I think. And it's a, a higher hit die. So just, yeah, the monk class for me was what bored me. I wanted to play monks because I took martial arts for five years, and so I wanted to play a type of character. But I looked at the monk, and I was extremely disappointed with it. 
And I did not see much change as I've been through the editions until I got those splat books. So for me, a monk is what kind of bores me. And as I said, a monk is a monk is a monk. And we have all the, the popular culture versions, but basically it boils down when you see monk, you see one of two things. You either see the Friar Tuck brother Juniper monk with the tonsur and the brown robes, or you get the warrior monk of Asian culture. That's it. Those are the only two things when I hear the word monk. Fly Chang Kane. Yeah, yeah. Or what? what's the term? A Sohai. And that's actually a class in Palladium Fantasy. S-O-H-E-I. I think I'm pronouncing it correctly. But yeah, basically, it's either the warrior monk or like the Franciscan robe-wearing monk. And even then, I don't see a lot of variation in either of those archetypes. So that's the one. That's the class that gets me with little variation. Mine is cat girls. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you just say the term, okay, and you've all someone's already got them slinking around. You know, they may be slender and curvaceous or they're boobalicious with big fuzzy ears, you know. They're always beautiful. They're always cute. They're almost always, you know, in some way, uh, well, you know, the way you want a cat to be, okay. And uh, they're, you know, now, uh, granted, I, I, I do enjoy watching harem animes, but I'm just saying is that... Uh, they they tend to be very stereotypical. They tend to be they tend to downplay their intelligence uh, until you find out they may be very intelligent. But you know, you usually almost always you're given the stereotype first, and then later on you may find out that they have more skills than they seem to. Um, and uh, I, I you know, there's a lot. I wish more was done with it in a lot of regards. Now, and I'm going to give an example where they did, and where they did both where they basically were extremely stereotypical and followed all the tropes for the cat girl, you know, wafu, sweetheart, thing like that. At the same time, they also had other cat girls that were totally professional, totally, you know, badass, okay? And that is, it's got, it goes by a, a bunch of different names. Uh, cat girl cuties, bombshells from the sky. Uh, I think the actual name is... Uh, 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 Asobi ni, I, I'm going to pronounce it terribly. I'm sorry, anybody who actually knows how to speak Japanese. Asobi ni ikuyu. Uh, but, you know, you've got this girl who, who basically arrives saying, Hi, we decided to come and visit with you for a while. And, and she's got all the same cat girl type stuff. At the same time, she's from a ship. She's, you know, where she's got a captain that's just as tough and, and smart as Picardo and uh, has has business meetings with all the other members of the staff and they get into life or death situations. And yes, they're all just drop dead, gorgeous, curvaceous cat girls. But outside of that, they're like their jobs. They're like the real, you know, what you'd expect real characters to be, you know, and some of them are no nonsense and other ones are, are, are very frivolous, but they're all doing their jobs and they all make sense. 
So that's a good example. But most of the time I see it, I, I see it as more of a, a, uh, a, a silly, a silly thing where, you know, just by saying somebody's a cat girl, you immediately, okay, we're going to downgrade this person to a sidekick or support or, you know, something like that. So, so that's my example. I, I, I like it when they, they basically cross, don't do that. You know, when they, 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 they break those stereotypes and, and, and show themselves to be uh, a lot more interesting than uh, the, the standard uh, sex toy. And now suddenly I want to see someone make a story with the cat girl where it ends up being like everybody just imagining this sexy cat girl and cat girl. And then when you finally meet her, she ends up being like the typical fat cat. You know, oh. like lazy, laying her cat, <laughs> wants you to yeah, bring big, her food. <laughs> big, big, soft belly, yeah, <laughs> deep throated, purring. That would be so yes. hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's that's somebody's uh, you know ideal dream girl. That's true. You know, that's true. <laughs> it's just it just depends on where your uh, where your your kinks are. So. All right. Well, thanks. Thank you guys for for helping me uh, do this uh, topic, and thanks for all our listeners. Who uh, I hope you'll, you've gotten something out of it. I hope you're uh, going to be not only as you were entertained, but I hope that you are going to start looking at your characters and try to find ways to not only reinforce the stereotypes associated with your characters and their professions and the other aspects of your character, but also to deviate more strongly or at least more, more noticeably acted out more in your play so that people see these characters as ultimately more rich you know, with a deeper tapestry of abilities and characteristics so that when you interact with the other players, uh, the other characters in your group, in your role-playing group, you're going to find more ways of creating frisson between them because your characters are, in fact, more complex than they they initially appeared. Uh, Thanks a lot for being with us. We're going to have a lot more for you on uh, Gaming on the Frontier, but you're going to have to wait until next week. So until then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Gaming on the Frontier podcast is wholly owned by its hosts. It is released under the Creative Commons 3.0 license. No commercial reproduction and any use of any element of the podcast must be attributed to the Gaming on the Frontier podcast. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org, colon 8027.